This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, this is Jesse. This is Tom Homey. This is Eric. And I'm Jenny. Hello. Hey. So you're all under 25, right? Because I can't trust anyone over 25. <laughs> I don't think any of us can be trusted. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, well, let's let's say why why we should care about that. That um, We just read uh, Little Brother again. Uh, I assume we all completed it. I, I thought yes. it was 21 hours, but it turned out to be 12 hours. Thank God. Hmm. Um, this is the second time through for me. I don't usually reread books. Uh, I was a little hesitant to reread this, but actually I, I don't think anything really changed in my second reading except that I think it's even more relevant today in 2012 than it is than it was in 2008 when I read it originally. Oh yeah, I mean I was voting this morning in the South Carolina primaries, so oh. um, it felt pretty relevant to me. <laughs> Did you vote Herman Cain? <laughs> Tempting. <laughs> you mean for Stephen Colbert? Yeah. yeah. No. I'm not going to say who I voted for. See, in my state, you don't you don't register by party, so you can pick which primary you want to vote in. Uh huh. Okay. Well, you don't have to say, <laughs> I suppose. But no, I mean, I just well, as I was reading it, probably it felt... a whole other podcast. I'll be shaking my head the whole time. So sure. yeah. Well, with all the news lately in our country, with the SOPA and the PIPA stuff going on, um, this book felt incredibly relevant this time around. This is my second time, too. So, Tam, is your first time? It is. I just finished it this morning. What did you think of it? Um, it's, it's, like, it's like two books. It's like, it's like a nonfiction essay combined with an, a tense YA thriller. Mm. Yeah, so, uh, it, it, went, it went down easy. And Eric, you were saying right before we started that uh, there was a problem with the book. Ah, how dare you, sir? <laughs> what is the problem with this wonderful book? Well, actually, well, I, I, like, I like the book a lot, but uh, it, one of the reasons that I that it goes down so easily, I think, is that it plugs into all sorts of uh, formulae, both you know cliches, and we get the words that just, well, we recognize those, and uh, dramatic cliches and character cliches. I mean, we don't really have any doubt about whether or not Marcus is going to develop a romantic relationship with Ange, and the fact that her name makes her seem like an angel. I mean, it just, you know, it all works out so well um, and so smoothly. On, on the one hand, that sword cuts nicely in that science fiction so often, if it has a strong didactic, or in this case, I, I hope we can talk about whether or not we want to call it propagandistic Yeah, uh, I was thinking purpose. that word. Yeah. Uh, Agit prop. Yeah. Um, it, it, when, a, when a work has that kind of strong purpose, uh, science fiction at least often suffers from what is sometimes called info dumping. I love, this, I love the info dumping in this book. Well, so did I, in fact. That's what I meant when I said the sword cuts one way, um, that the, the way that Dr. O makes it all go down so easily uh, takes what, in other hands, would be egregious info dumps and makes you kind of think, hey, this is kind of cool. I like learning this. Um, on the other hand, 
when it all goes down so easily, there's a part of me that says, okay, this was composed by computer. (laughs) (laughs) That wouldn't surprise me. Well, and you know, Uh, a lot of the... like, Like he did a lot of revisions, is that what you mean? No, uh, let's take a look at the, uh, if I may, take a look at the the, uh, underlying Oedipal structure of the book. Um, We have a a kind of standard motif um, of a boy who is our protagonist and needs to distance himself from his father because his father is really not on the right side of things. Instead, um, he has, in this case, which is rarer in science fiction, an obviously strong affinity for his mother. Mm. Uh, From an Oedipal viewpoint, we have to somehow either throw over the father or reconcile with him. And Heinlein does this all the time, and this book, as others have pointed out, um, has the same kind of libertarian bent we find in Heinlein. And uh, the revolutionary aspects of the book have a lot to do with the moon is a harsh mistress, and the the computer that, in a way, leads the revolution in that novel is called Mike, and that's one of the names that Marcus takes for himself here. Now, in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, the professor um, stands for the father and has a political affinity with, uh, with Manny, the human protagonist, but the father comes up about three times in the novel, and he's seen in passing, and we realize that Manny has no real relationship with his father. But in other Heinlein books, like uh, Starship Troopers, it is the bravery of the son that brings the father around to adopt the the son's political position and resolve that that conflict between the generations. Uh, We see the same thing in Bradbury in uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes, where the father sort of comes out uh, and realizes the boys need help and manages to to subdue evil. So we've got this this intergenerational conflict where the the youth has to look better. And in terms of a full-blown Oedipal conflict, the question is, what do you have as a sex object? And it's clear that Marcus has this really powerful relationship with the mother. But when the mother and Angie first meet, there's a wonderful half-page section in which they share pepper spray. Uh, and uh, it, it's, in fact, even sexual. I, maybe this is too early to, in our discussion to, to read it, but I'd love to <laughs> at some point. And in fact, what goes on is that, that Angie takes the place of the mother. And so it becomes licit to have a sexual relationship with the woman who's always figured powerfully in Marcus's imagination. So this book, has a really, really well-developed, quite clear, quite easy to understand, even if you don't think about it, mythic structure that exists for everybody in Western civilization. When I say it's sort of written by computer, I mean, I could have, I can write out those elements of the relationship of the protagonist to the father figure, how you have to deal with it, what you have to do in terms of sexual access to make the plot work out right, and I can find bunches of science fiction novels that use these devices one way or the other, and I've just given you a few of them, uh, that I think are particularly relevant to this particular novel. That's why I point to Heinlein in particular. So that's what I mean when I say, you know, on the one hand, it makes the info dumps work so well, the it being the polish and the, the use of well-worn and understood formulae. The fact that the doctor knows which levers to pull. I won't say buttons to push because I think he's subtler than that. 
He knows which levers to pull. But on the other hand, the more you notice that these are levers being pulled, the more you might think, okay, basically you did this not because you had a great story to tell, but because you wanted to get your propaganda across. And that's a legitimate political purpose. But from an aesthetic viewpoint, it should hardly be what motivates us, I think. I noticed as we began our discussion, um, all of you, the other three of you guys, as I was listening, used the word relevant. This novel is more relevant now than when it was published in 2008. This novel is certainly relevant now. Well, Homer is relevant too, but not because we turn to it for its politics. I think this novel is relevant because we're worrying about the Patriot Act, modern technology, and so on. It's its didacticism that makes it particularly relevant, I think. Yes, yes, I, I, I agree. Jenny, you were trying to say something. Oh, well, I guess I'm more familiar f- with Cory Doctorow in that nonfiction world, like what Tama was saying, how half of it felt more like a lecture. You know, I listen to his podcast. I'm familiar with his work in the past with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is all about internet privacy and anti-censorship. So I kind of liked it in novel form. I mean, maybe I prefer it that way. <laughs> well, it, it, yeah, it certainly um, goes goes down easy. And I think he is uh, just an amazing communicator. I'm, I'm, oh, sure. I can't say that, you know, I love all of his fiction. I find, uh, you know, a lot of his themes are not like, I'm not obsessed with Disneyland at all. Right, this is I have by no far interest favorite in yeah. it in Disneyland, but um, of course, this, his point. I mean, Corey says that um, the point of Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom is not really to discuss Disneyland. It's really to discuss the future of money. I mean, each of his books he makes. I mean, he's public about this. Has. Uh, a political technological point to make and that book is really about what happens when money isn't the issue uh except uh, my, my, I, not having read the book but <laughs> i did <laughs> i didn't uh listen to luke's review of it it sounds to me uh like it doesn't solve the 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 problem it was going after in that wuffy is is not a uh a tangible explanatory alternative to what we've got in in currency currency is amazing money is amazingly hard to understand uh the more i i research into what money is and the relationship it has to uh, basically all social social phenomena it's harder to explain how how it functions i think Um, one of the reasons that that novel is not as widely read and praised as Little Brother, is that it raises the question and it right. talks yeah. about alternatives, but it doesn't, in a sense, give you a, a call to arms. This one actually does give you a call to arms, and it is, uh, in a sense, somewhat feasible. And we saw that this week with the uh, the protests against Sopa and Pipa, as Jenny was mentioning earlier. And they work. Those bills have been withdrawn. Yeah. Well, uh, how about... How about uh, the one signed at the end of the year, you know, the one uh, infinite detention uh, without uh, habeas corpus. That's yeah, that's, I couldn't believe that. I couldn't believe that happened. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's Obama will it's, never use it. It's uh, <laughs> 1984. It is right. I mean, that's this book's this this book 
when you say 1984, oh my God, right? Uh, or Orwellian, you know, uh, people should say, oh, God, we got to stop this. We don't want that. But uh, I would say that Little Brother is the only, I mean, of the books of the first 10 years of the, you know, uh, 2000s, uh, it's the one that stands out to me as, you know, really nailing what, and I think this is what science fiction is, is nailing what is going on. A lot of science fiction is, you know, it talks about, you know, relationships and, uh, you know, small things. But this one is very well targeted. I think the characterization is is terrific, which uh, I think is just because he's basically writing about people like him, people he knows, um, him as a kid, you know. Well, Jesse, I think you're right, but I think more importantly, it points out how you can address the issues now. And and it's not going to be necessarily through the government, but it's through a force that affects the government, you know, through internet strategies. And, you know, that's a change for our culture, I think. Well, it, it, it talks about history, too, you know. those I mean, those classes are very Heinleinian, where he's sitting in the classroom and the teacher is is teaching, you know, history and, and saying, what does this mean? And, and hmm. we get both kinds of teachers, right? We get the, the uh, intelligent sort of, um, you know, usually played by a father figure, as, uh, as uh, Eric would point out, you know, uh, Heinlein has some archetypes that he goes to again and again. The, the first female social studies teacher is, is uh, of one kind, and then there's the, the, the replacement, who is, uh, you know, minister of propaganda appointed? <laughs> Hor- you know, what I think I think one of the things I pointed out in my review is that, um, like a Heinlein novel, this this thing it feels like it's full of straw men. You know, people easily knocked down like Charles and and such. But the problem is, <laughs> is when you are confronting reality, which I, you know, I. I do whenever I leave these doors and I go talk to people. You find that those straw men actually exist. Right? Uh, the Department of Homeland Security is not a mythical organization, and the TSA is not a mythical organization. And people's response to both is not mythical. It's exactly like I'm seeing in this book. I'd like to... Uh... I don't disagree with what you're saying at all, but I would like to uh, to try to retrieve the the uh, literary quality of this, uh, or re underline the literary quality of this work, um, instead of letting so much rest on its political aptness or its technological uh, correctness. If I could turn to you know you said there are people there really are these straw men like Charles. Hmm. Um, now, on page uh, 314, in the printed copy, at least my copy, um, we have a reference. Uh, Marcus is explaining how people can manage to get around and not be spotted by the cameras. And he says, put pebbles, put these pebbles in your shoes before you put them on. It's okay. I sprained my foot. No gate recognition program will spot me now. Sorry, that's, it's Marcus responding. I, I sprained my foot. Uh, we are both wanted criminals now. Now, Oedipus means lame foot. 
And right, it comes from the story of him being staked out by his feet and you know left to be eaten by an animal, but he gets saved by the shepherd and raised by the king and queen of Corinth. Um, gate recognition is mentioned all the way back, I think, on page 18. So Dr. O is setting us up to have gate recognition become an important thing later on. And here on 314, we have an actual dialogue to remind us that gate recognition might be something you could escape if you're clever enough to make yourself appear to be lame. On the facing page, 315, we suddenly find the danger. Someone fell in behind us and said, freeze right there. It was full of evil mirth. We stopped and turned around. At the mouth of the alley stood Charles, wearing a half-hearted vamp mob outfit, etc. And at that point, it seems to me, we need to understand that his last name is Walker. Oh, it's, right. It's not Walker. You're right, but it's not Walker for no reason. I think that Dr. O is really very smart. Oh, and, right. no and, question. I mean, but uh, you're literally. finding those. You're finding the proof in in stuff that I, I second time through didn't notice that. Well, and that's what I'm trying to say. Although I, my own feeling is that this is so slick that part of as a novel, I mean, that mm-hmm. in some ways I think, well, you know, it's a, I'm in the hands of a machine, and I don't sort of like that. On the other hand, the more I investigate the machine, the more I think I'm dealing with a gorgeous Swiss clockwork, uh, because all of these pieces fit together so cleverly. Yeah, I, normally there's some some uh, major thing that I, doesn't work for me. You know, some minor character. I, I think I think that this is a masterwork, and in, in that I'll, I've read a lot of his stuff, and it's it's good. But it, I think there's a combination going on of 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 topicalness. Right, he's really talking about stuff he knows about. So you know, I, I I think a lot of the time Heinlein talks like he knows what he's talking about, but really he's just making it up and making it. Say, Here's a thesis, right? Well, this this guy isn't full of thesis. He's he, real life examples, and then uh, the story matching it up with with the with with uh, the moon is a harsh mistress and matching it up with with um, 1984 and 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 the you know the history of California and the history of of the the yippies and all of the it, it feels like he can do no wrong it, this is a, a masterwork that's how it feels to me so can I ask you a follow-up question to that Jesse yeah yeah because I know how you hate books that have sequels so, yeah, I hear he's making a sequel. <laughs> How do you feel about it in that context? I mean, you've read basically the first book in a series twice now. Yeah, I don't. I don't normally. Well, it's <laughs> not a series yet. Okay. Um, uh, I I would suspect that he's not going to do what, um, what we might guess he is going to do, or. M- more specifically, what you are guessing he's going to do. Because when he says he's writing a sequel, I don't know if it'll have the same character. If it does, um, I, don't know what, I don't know what it'll be like. But I don't imagine it's going to be about uh, character and getting into trouble just for the sake of getting into trouble. I think it's... He, he seems to be... I mean, if you look at his other work for The Win and uh, 
uh, his short stories, he seems to be um, an idea-based writer. And if he is writing a sequel to this, because it is extremely successful, I, I don't imagine he's going to just chuck that out, that idea-based writing, uh, and replace it with character-based writing. I, I normally don't care about character, but I was thinking about it in the second pass through. These characters are really terrific. They're just smooth and they deliver what I what I want, which is great ideas in a in you know in a non yeah I guess like uh, Eric is saying you know it's very smooth. There's nothing to trip me up and say wait a second that's silly. Yeah. I I I don't know if I'll read it, but if uh, it sounds interesting, I probably will because this was this was uh, he knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. I think the the thing that would be interesting to me is to see Winston, a.k.a. W1N. <laughs> Let me spell it out since I'm over 25. Um, but it would be interesting to see him dealing with the weight of starting this kind of thing and, you know, really carrying it through. I think in Little Brother, it's has a sense of urgency to it. There's a lot of momentum to it, but then what happens after? What happens as the government changes? And I think it could still work with the same characters, so I'll be interested to see what he does. Well, it's possible. It's possible. I'll read I, it. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to prejudge it at all. But um, oh, sure. People, people do make mistakes, and um, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that 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 that's actually well shown in this book. That that whole line about uh, don't trust anyone over twenty five. It's not well thought through. <laughs> I mean, Charles isn't trustworthy, and lots of the uh, people over twenty-five are trustworthy, right? The uh, the re- the reporter, she's trustworthy. The um, the first teacher is, you know, it's it's a um, it's a it, it, also that doesn't come from our hero character, who even is not completely trustworthy himself. I think. This is the strength. Is he? He knows uh, that he's not perfect. He knows he makes mistakes. And in my second reading through, I'm I'm a little wiser as I get older. I think. Um, and one of the things I noticed is that um, he actually has a, a moral problem, even though he has um, he has. I mean, he he is on the side of the angels, if there is such a side, and. That moral problem is that he is involving people in the revolution without their consent. Um, you know, when he he institutes the uh, the Bart uh, clo- RFID cloning, um, he's he is um, inconveniencing many many people. And I understand that, that that's not it's for the greater good, but um, it is still a moral quandary that is unaddressed really. Uh, it's raised though explicitly. It's raised, but right it's... on on 141, uh, Mike is. I mean, Marcus is thinking to himself, "I felt like I was going to throw up." Those four people, kids I'd never met, went away forever because of something I'd started. That's what you're talking about. And then he says, "Because of something I told them to do, I was no that's better more... than a terrorist." Well, that's but that, part of that is guilt versus you know a feeling of guilt versus um. An... No, I'm not talking about the character. I'm talking about the reader. When the when the author has the character say, "I was no better than a terrorist," I think the reader is being asked to figure out what 
act of violence is allowable and is better than a terrorist, which one isn't? And it, I think, is asking us to recognize the difficulty of having moral certainty once you admit moral relativism. Oh, uh, do we have a case of moral relativism here? This is one, yes. It's okay. I mean, he's saying, I- I'm doing this for the greater good, even though I know it's a bad thing. But now he's thinking about it and saying, oops, now I am somebody who's willing to do bad things where the ends justify the means. And yet he goes on with it, and we keep rooting for him. So the book is asking us to wonder if, in fact, we always have to say it's always ends or it's always means, or if there is some moral relativity. And that's a problem, I think. This is one of the things that makes the book good, from my viewpoint. Um, that's the kind of problem that any thinking person will be confronting during adolescence. I mean, shaping your values that you're going to then, if you're lucky enough to be able to come up with a workable set, mainly rely on, at least in familiar situations, for most of your life. That's something that's hard to do and that you do do during adolescence. I mean, you have to do it during adolescence because that's the period during which you separate yourself from your parents. It's the period during which you can no longer say, I'm doing this because I was told to do it, but rather have to say, I'm doing it because I decided to do it, even though authority told me otherwise. And I think the book asks us to ask about that question, which is a long-term question, but it's essential to adolescence. I I think it's also related to... um when is it time to overthrow the government? <laughs> well, sure. you know? well, because yeah. the, the part of the Declaration of Independence that he reads in class that gets him in trouble at school and then he later uses in his speech um, is very, I mean, the wrong people could use it. I mean, and that's kind of the question I was asking myself. At what point is that kind of action appropriate? Because until it is appropriate, it's almost treason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is, obviously, it is treason. <laughs> I mean, you're making a, a gorgeous point, Jenny, and I think our two, what we're both saying, are utterly complementary. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, it, I if, so. if if you point to a written document and say, "Here's the framework within which we all have to function," and by the way, because we all have to function in a framework, I'm going to function outside the framework. <laughs> hmm. You know, wait a minute. How do those How do those go together? Yeah. And yet, in the course of human affairs, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I think it's also interesting um, in, in a sense that uh, this, is a, this is a book set in the United States. You know, Cory Doctor has lived in, in the Bay Area, and, um, and he lives in London now, but he's, he's from Canada. And we don't have a written constitution in the same way that the United States does. We have, a, we have what was called the British North America Act, which was an act of of the British Parliament, and that's that's our founding document. But uh, that is, uh, you know, I, I remember years and years and years ago there was an episode of Law and Order uh, where uh, the character Lenny Briscoe <laughs> he's he's trying to explain why it's okay to try and extradite somebody from Canada. He says they don't even have a Bill of Rights. They didn't get one until 1981, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and that's true. We didn't get we we didn't have a Bill of Rights. We have uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedom now, which is um, our equivalent of the Bill of Rights. But uh, nothing has significantly changed since that 
that imposition, you know, that, that new bill being introduced. And what it, what it really speaks to is that in Canada, we don't have uh, a sacrosanctness for the, the document and the founders, right? Our founder uh, was a guy who united the country despite being a drunk and uh, despite having a, uh, a, a, a scandal associated with taking money for in, in, the, in the uniting of the country uh, by railroad, you know. Um, he had a vision to create the, the country out of various uh, colonial territories. He did it, but we don't have him. We have him on our money, but we don't have him. He's not upheld in massive portraits and is not uh, a demigod as are the founders of the United States. Well, that's because ours were much better than yours. You know, <laughs> half of ours were slaveholders. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I'm not quite done, but I, I want to tell you that um, I, can't, I can't imagine this, even though this story is completely relevant to what's going on in Canada. There's a case right now of uh, a guy very much like Marcus Yellow, who his name is Byron Sonny, who's uh, in jail because of some um, phot- photography he was doing at the G20 uh, pr- uh, protests or prior to the G20 protests in, um, in uh, Toronto uh, two years ago. So it's a, it's a very relevant story for us, but having it set in the United States is not you know, simply a marketing thing. His characters have these aspirations that we don't have in Canada. You know, we are the great country of the world, and we can show that in our documents. Look at these wonderful documents. We don't have that. It works a lot better as a an epic story, and I'm not, I'm I'm also not 100 percent sure that uh, it would be believable. You know, we have security laws and such, but the Patriot Act isn't. Uh, we don't have an exact equivalent. We don't have. We have more like a compliance <laughs> uh, equivalent, and so I think it's it's it, it does speak very much to the United States and to. California's, I mean, the heroes at the end are the the government of California. It's not a libertarian. I, I, I don't know why everybody is obsessed with calling this a libertarian book. It's not a libertarian book. It's a freedom book, which is, I guess, related to libertarianism. But No, I think it is a libertarian book because uh, we're told, for example, uh, and there, there are a lot of places that are obviously didactic, but when it says... Um, very near the end as a kind of conclusion, something that has been learned through all of this by Marcus. Freedom is something you have to take for yourself. That's the libertarian viewpoint. It's not freedom is something we have to win together, right? Freedom is something you have to take for yourself. Um, Again and again, Marcus says, I had to realize this was my responsibility. If I were doing this, I was doing this. The fact that someone else consented doesn't get me off the hook for having had them do this. And that's the libertarian position. Um, certainly, it's the libertarian position as exemplified by Heinlein. Um, and that, I well, think, is, is the right background here. Well, uh, think, think of the mother, right? She, she's employed by the British government to help uh, British citizens uh, acclimate to the United States. Uh-huh. Um, if If... If this was a libertarian treatise, you know, or, or libertarian propaganda, uh, I think that that 
that that wouldn't exist, that she wouldn't have that job. Um, I don't see why not. Because, remember, the government only has one function, which is to protect the state. Um, You're going all the way back to to Hayek. Uh, there's all kinds of stripes of libertarians. And- indeed, there are. Uh, but I, I don't necessarily see, you know, what you were saying as a libertarian point, I think is just uh, a common sense point, right? You know, eventually you can't, you can only rely on yourself to get your freedom going. Um, I mean, I, I, there, it didn't it, win a Prometheus award. People think it is a, a libertarian book, but I, I don't, I don't see, I don't see it making that point. Especially, and I guess the government of California is the hero. No, the government of California isn't the hero. California Highway Patrol is the hero. (laughs) Indeed, and the California Highway Patrol is the hero. In fact, because they have a different attitude toward how they are going to fulfill their desire to perpetuate their own authority which is what we see from the very beginning of the book, that authority tries to perpetuate itself. The first time Marcus gets in trouble, he said, I don't understand. He said, it's a, you, the, the line is, you can cooperate or you can be very, very sorry. And he yeah. thinks through this, and why did they want that? What, what were they after? And then he realized they were after me just because I wouldn't unlock my phone. They had no knowledge there was any reason to have him unlock his phone. They just, they want to exercise authority, authority, right? That's true. So authority tries to perpetuate itself. California Highway Patrol comes to the rescue because they are fighting another authority. It's not that they are wonderful people or the government is good inherently. Individuals make individual choices, and that runs throughout all of this. Absolutely. Government is not inherently good. Right. Even California's government. Even the government of California, which has a lot of problems uh, not mentioned in the novel. and, and, And that's, of course, what's referenced when it says don't trust anyone over 25 it's clearly referencing the free speech movement from Berkeley in the 1960s, where the slogan is, don't trust anyone over 30. So we're supposed to recognize that as the world speeds up technologically, the age of people you can trust goes lower. By the way, when it says don't trust anyone over 25, it doesn't say trust everyone under 25. The fact that Charles Walker is untrustworthy doesn't violate that slogan. But there is a kind of juvenophilia in this book um you know and a child shall lead them um which makes me wonder a little bit about the sequel well it's a ya remember also i think that 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 uh, you know a lot of people say oh it's not ya because uh, a lot of people i know that some people it's a juvenile (laughs) whether it's a ya or juvenile book because it's got sex in it right um i think this is just uh yeah because 12 year old realistic sex is uh, yeah, it's just a real, and it's it's got shoplift. You know, he's mentioned of shoplifting, and all sorts of things that kids get into. Right? Um, it's just realistic. He doesn't pull any punches, and and he's got, I, I can't I can't imagine, remember a lot of swearing, but he's he's not he's not doing it like Heinlein was when he's writing those juveniles. He's he's writing them with a censor. You know, his editor said, "Oh, you can't do that." He managed to get a lot of uh, find a lot of reasons to have uh, kids naked in their homes. Um, <laughs> you know, oh, well, we live on Mars, but we keep our houses extremely hot. Oh, okay, <laughs> whatever, Mister Heinlein. But um, <laughs> we, I think, I think that this is this is how more YA should be. You know, don't don't do it like this. 
uh, this is a wonderful YA book, and I, I am looking forward to the quote-unquote sequel if he is working on one. You know, I was thinking about how this is kind of a, a subgenre of science fiction that I seem to particularly like. I'm not really sure why. I was trying to think of the other books that fit in the category, you know, where there's some kind of overly clever teenager that beats the system or defeats the terrorists or tricks the government, whatever, <laughs> you know, using their coding skills or their history skills or their detective skills. <laughs> Another well, one that fits I, in that category is uh, Feed by M.T. Anderson. Yeah, that's definitely one. I have a list of others. I was thinking Snow Crash. I mean, I've just been listening to that one again. You think of Snow Crash is a YA, Jenny? No, no. I just mean the the what the character does and how their ability lets them defeat forces that are so powerful, but because they have these special, you know, smarts or abilities or insights or something. And then, um, like the Dervish House, one of the storylines there does that noise by darren bradley is like that ready player one in some ways is like that um all these books that i've really liked seem to have this common thread to them it's kind of interesting i haven't read any of those <laughs> <laughs> you haven't read snow crash no i haven't read uh, any neil stevenson uh long <sighs> fiction i might have read something short but i don't recall if you, if, if you sure. like the the, uh, the futurology here and in Rainbow's End, probably the Stevenson book you should read is The Diamond Age. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've, I've heard people uh, who, who like uh, one don't necessarily like the other, but That's not true. having read either, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> You're impartial. I, I am completely impartial. I, I, I'm interested in Neil Stevenson. He seems to write about interesting things, but he, he also seems to write really long. And uh, uh, I think this is this book was the perfect length. Yeah, I agreed. I, I did a little bitty. Uh, I had a a minor discovery this morning um, as I was preparing for our talk that I would like to share. Sure. Um, obviously, the book is called Little Brother in reference to Big Brother. Mm. And the use of Winston as a, or however you, I mean, that's how you pronounce it, I guess. Yeah, that, yeah. it's pronounced uh, Winston. He even says it's pronounced Winston. And the, the, remember the fuddy-duddy old principal can't can't get, can't understand that it's supposed to right. be pronounced Winston. Right. Like that's Sleet. A, right. Exactly. You know? Yeah, it's Sleet. Um, so it's 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 in reference to uh, to Orwell and. Um, wonderfully in the epilogue, uh, I mean the afterword. Dr. O tells us that he read 1984 when he was 12 and that it's the best political book he has ever read. And he has read it since another 30 or 40 times. Yeah. Um, so I, I love the fact that he read it at 12. I have this huge collection of authors who tell us what they encountered at the age of 12 that set them off forever. Oh, cool. And and I really think that 12 is a magical number, not just because that's how many disciples there were. But, <laughs> so I, but I went online to see, you know, what God, I mean, Wikipedia said about this book. And it is, is all-knowing. It except, is. Except a couple of days ago. Well, actually, it's not all-knowing. I'm going to add something for no, our it's conversation it's, it's that's not smart. in Wikipedia. Um, there was a, there's a discussion there of the origin of the term Big Brother. And obviously, for Dr. O, the origin is supposedly 1984, and I'm sure Dr. O would not 
deny that 1984 is a big influence on him. But the earlier question is, what is the origin of the term Big Brother for for Orwell? Mm. And Wikipedia actually has an article about this saying that it could be this and it could be that. And it talks about some posters that were around and, uh, and so on. But I think I actually know the origin. And I okay. want to share it with you guys because Please. the – well, thank you. Because um, I think you'll see that it has just the right political tone to work with Dr. O. There's a 1937 book by Wells, not a very well-read book these days, um, called Starbegotten. But given Wells' enormous prominence, it certainly was well-read, um, widely read, when it came out. Now, Starbegotten is uh, a novel in which Martians on a dying planet need to be able to, to find a new place to, to live. But they cannot go to Earth. Um, they can't go to Earth because their bodies wouldn't survive here. Wells already figured that out in the War of the Worlds, uh, and they don't really want to invade and have rockets coming. What they do is they project sort of, I mean, the, the terms aren't available to, to Wells in 1937, but in effect they project genetic information into the bodies of women so that their children will turn out to be Martian. Not Martian in in physical form, but humans who are, who are in fact, Martian. Mm. That is sort of the way Olaf Stapledon, who gets referenced in the book, has different versions of man, even though they look physically different. So they become Martians. And, um, and that's a problem, because Martians uh, are part of a group mind. Now, in this novel, we, where we are being in this subtle way invaded by the different new generation that will not be like us. Um, we get this paragraph. Um, Homo sapiens, whispered the doctor. Homo superbus, I suggest. That's what's going to be the, the next thing, the Martians that we're going to become. Let's have the full indictment. And now the, here comes the answer. The creature hardly ever becomes adult. Hardly any of us grow up fully. He's talking about human beings here. Particularly do we dread and shirk complete personal responsibility, which is what being adult means. Man is the boy who won't grow up, but he grows monstrous, clumsy, and heavy at times all the same. A Goering monster. A Mussolini. Now, this is 1937. This is before war breaks out in Europe, or at least the world war breaks out the the Spanish Revolution is already happening. The bouncing boys of Europe. Most of us to the very end of our lives are obsessed with infantile cravings for protection and direction. And out of these cravings come all those impulses towards slavish subjection to gods, kings, leaders, heroes, bosses, mystical personifications like the people, my country, right or wrong, the church, the party, the masses, the proletariat. Our imaginations hang on to some such big brother idea Almost to the end, we will accept almost any self-abasement rather than step out of the crowd and be full-grown individuals. Yeah, that's that's, and I, that's exactly what we have here. We have a guy who says, "I'm not going to be big brother. I'm going to be a little brother, but by golly, I'm going to grow up." 
And it's, I mean, Wells, as is so often the case, Wells had it nailed before anybody. And Orwell picks up on that. And I think Dr. O is picking up on exactly that same thing. What it means to defy little brother is to stop being a child and become an adult. And that means politically you take responsibility for what you do and the consequences of your actions. It, the the plot reminds me of that. I think there was a movie with uh, the women, uh, some comet or something happens, and then the women give birth to sort of identical-looking children. What, Is that, that the Midwitch Cuckoos? Midwitch Cuckoos, yeah. Um, I guess it's not just a movie. It's a book, too. Duh. John Wyndham, uh, I think. John Wyndham, one of the ones. Uh, John Wyndham's I haven't read. Um, I think but, it's also called Children of the Damned or something like that. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think yeah, I think that's the movie name. I think I've seen that the movie name. Um, <laughs> maybe that's the sequel to <laughs> 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 Star Begun. Um, uh, well, uh, to me, I, the uh, I, when I I can't, I can't remember if it was twelve, but it was certainly around that time that I read uh, nineteen eighty four, and I haven't reread it. Um, again and again I, I probably should reread it again at some point but i still remember it you know it's it's a vivid it, it's vividly uh smashed into my brain like a giant boot you know <laughs> um uh forever and ever it's right. been smashed into my brain um but which by the way is an image that orwell picks up from jack london yeah the the, the, the iron, iron heel, heel. Yep. right uh, which I haven't read yet, but I'm very interested in reading. Uh, Jack London there, he he actually is a nice um, uh, parallel with Cory Doctorow, I think. Um, not just being a San Francisco uh, storyteller, right? But also uh, a propagandist in the, in the, in the same way. Mm. Um, and, and a talented writer of propaganda and, yeah. and, and fiction and science fiction. Uh, but that is another story. <laughs> what, do we, what do we mean by that term, propaganda? Well, uh, propaganda is is usually usually it's it's termed by the government rather than a person. So in that way, it's not appropriate. But I think that it, it's not a negative term. Uh, you know, minister of propaganda is probably a not not a good thing. But um, uh, for it's liter- it's it's pamphleteering, right? It's it's uh, it's education of a political kind, right? Once you once you know how the system works, you also need um, some some meat on those bones, and th- that's illustrated by examples. I think, um, you know. Goebbels, the minister of propaganda for for uh, the Nazis, um, he didn't like a lot of people think he didn't actually encourage lies in propaganda. He thought you only had to shade the truth. He didn't demand that you know his propagandists write up you know we're winning the war, <laughs> but they would say you know we lost that battle, but the war is winnable. Now the second part is not a uh, is not a piece of news, right? It's 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 an argument that you should keep fighting, but it's not a lie in the same sense that we didn't lose that war. Uh, and in, in 1984, you're looking at uh, it's a war against the the individuals, 
So what do you mean by propaganda? Well, um, as, as, we, we, as we, you know, so uh, often I think etymologically, um, I'm reminded that the word comes from from the Roman Catholic Church, that it, it begins in the 17th century uh, from the congregation for the propagation of the faith. Propaganda is from is the participle form from the verb to propagate. And uh, it seems to me that if you believe the faith, then getting together with other people, the congregation to propagate it, that's a good thing. Um, if you don't believe in that, then, uh, you know, maybe it's a bad thing. Uh, but it does have to do with, with faith. That is, it, it's not news. It's, it's not the reportage of facts. There is something about ideology here. And I guess that propaganda has a bad, uh, a bad odor for modern Westerners because we see it as a tool of government rather than um, a spontaneous desire for the committed to bring their good news to the world. Um, so when I hear someone say that this is propaganda, uh, I think of it as a pejorative. Yeah, usually it's, it's when it's said that way, it is. Right. And when I think of this book, um, if I think of it as didactic, then, you know, teachers give you the wherewithal to do things. They empower you. So if the book is didactic, that means I like having it tell me that I should stand up to DHS and so on. If I think of the book as propagandistic, then I think, stop beating me over the head. I can make up my own mind, which, after all, is what you're saying should be done. Um, and I guess I'm asking... Do we think are we are we going to rehabilitate the term propaganda or if we're not, then do we diminish this book by calling it propaganda? Um, it clearly is propaganda. And so that's why I'm wondering, you know, how we can deploy this term to come to understand the book better. Uh, I, you know, I think people just need to read read more about what propaganda is there's there's a the Wikipedia entry on propaganda is is excellent. It's full of uh, all the different kinds that you get and the origins of it. But um, I used to, you know, when I was very young, I used to think that propaganda was always bad. Um, but um, I think propaganda is advertising, uh, uh, advertising facts in interest, right, towards something. It's, it's purposeful. It's not simply... Um, uh, it's not. It's designed to persuade, and uh, most facts, like you know, the, the fact that uh, World War II started in 1938 or 1939 or 1940, those facts are debatable. But that World War II is a war, world a war worth fighting is uh, not a fact. It's a it's an argument, and that that argument is persuadable by propaganda, right? So uh, it, it's it's a reality, and we must deal with it. But it's not a simple a simple thing. Well, that's that's what I think, anyways. So is the moon is a harsh mistress? To take a book that clearly is referenced yeah. here, is that propaganda? I mean, after all, it, it is. I don't think so. Trying to get us to think that uh, standing up for 
the right and overthrowing authority if it's wrong is a valuable and legitimate thing to do. And so why why not think of that as propaganda? I I, I, I don't think it is because <laughs> uh, we are not living on the moon. <laughs> However, if we were prisoners living on the moon, I think uh, I, I think one of the things that makes this different from uh, this is mu- this is much more like 1984 than it is like uh, uh, the Mooners of the Harsh Mistress, in part because um, uh, Oceana is Oceana is now. There's a propaganda poster for you, right? Um, whereas uh, the straw men uh, are much strawier, much more strawful uh, <laughs> in uh, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress because. We don't live in that reality. So it can't happen here, you know, Sinclair Lewis. Um, so it can't happen here. Was I propaganda it when it was published, <laughs> but it's not propaganda anymore? Uh, I haven't read that. Ah. Well, let me put it another way. Uh, is 1984, uh, it was not propaganda when it was published, but it is propaganda now? Hmm. I think it was propaganda... Uh, I think its purpose was propagandistic, or well, maybe. But not. isn't that also but, true for the moon as a harsh mistress? Just I'm not even sure that this book that the that this book is. I think agitprop is a much better uh, uh, agitprop fiction is a better uh, <laughs> you know tag to put on it if you were selling it on the shelf. Um, one kind of tag. I also think science fiction is a good tag to put on it. Uh, I'm certainly not going to argue with the, the science part. The agitprop, I'm uh, I'm open to more persuasion uh, because I don't see. It's, maybe I'm just too old, but I, I didn't read this book and feel like I should go out and, and set up XNet. I, it certainly made me feel that way, and you know what? It also made me uh, get copies and give them to kids. I say, hey. You don't want to read a good YA book uh, that isn't 15 sequels? Oh, maybe it will be, but <laughs> that isn't wow. 15 sequels and that, that uh, you know, tells you, hey, you're a smart kid. You're not alone. There's lots of other smart people out there who are uh, interested in understanding and, and uh, not merely consuming the, their world. And I, I think that this, this book speaks to a certain kind of person as well. It's got... Um, you know, it, it's not about uh, high school politics. It's not about um, dating, even though it has that sort of stuff in it. It's about um, being a hacker and taking things apart and understanding how things work and making the world easier for yourself. Go forth and hack, my yeah. children. That's the that, end of the book. That's, children that's, is the that's children it. is the key thing there, Tam. I think children is the key thing. It says, uh, if you want to really screw the DHS, you have to embarrass them. It's not like you're going to be able to outshoot them. Your only weapon is your ability to make them look like morons. That statement obviously depends upon the notion that other people will care if DHS looks like morons. It assumes that you've got a public that isn't behind DHS. It assumes that you've got adults who are going to actually be moved by recognizing that these guys are terrible. And that's why you need this book. You have to hand it out to right. them. Right, but that's, but that's children. That, that's, that's a message for yeah. children. 
Not a message for adults. 12-year-olds, maybe. Indeed. Perfect book to give to your 12-year-old. Well, I have six-and-a-half-year-old twins. Could I give one copy to the two of them? <laughs> Cut it in half. and <laughs> You read right. the first half, you read the second right. half. Alex, you read the first half. Zach, you read the second. We'll cover the book from A to Z. Just take out the sex scenes. Jenny, did you want to say something? Oh Well, I was just thinking about how I think it's important to point out that it's not that Winston developed these abilities as soon as the terrorist attacks happened. No. He, he had the Xbox in his closet for such a time. He already had the coding skills. He, you know, he'd been preparing. And I think that the thread I've seen in the books I mentioned before, that that's pretty consistent where it's not like they just turned that on overnight. It was that they'd been methodically paying attention to the direction things were going. And I almost think that that's a really good message from the book too. Like just oh, yeah. pay attention, <laughs> you know, what can you do? What can you learn? How can you protect yourself? Are you giving up privacy on a regular basis? <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure. I'm not yeah. sure. I don't think he had been preparing for that day. It's just, he happened to be, you know, the, the reason this novel is told from this character's point of view is he was, he was, uh, the kind of person who got caught up in events, but also, um, happened to have the tool set to, to do it. So, um, a good example, I think, you know, is it, it's Cory Doctorow himself. He's not writing this book because he wants to write 1984. He just happened to find out that, guess what? We've got some 1984-like conditions. Um, not exactly, I and mean, not nearly as bad, but certainly much more uh, closer to home than uh, you know Soviet Russia, uh, for Orwell even, right? Um, it's closer to home, and it's it, 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 he is prepared, and he's got the, the right attitude. It, I mean, I know that in, for myself that when when uh, the circumstances are happen to be that way, and I've got the tool set, I can do a good job, and I tend to take off with it. Right? It's well, it's, but Marcus had um, been hacking the school system for years. I mean, he he found a workaround for the computers they gave them. He found a workaround for the textbooks. He found ways to communicate to his friends through a network that wasn't supposed to allow that. So. I mean, he'd been doing that for several years, I think. Yeah, but uh, the uh, the 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 terrorism. I love how the, the 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 terrorism is not at all. You know, there's no resolution to that. It doesn't really matter. That's how we should be looking at 9/11. It's not that every and the world changed. Whose world changed? His world changed. How did his world change? His rights were taken away from him. He's treated mm-hmm. like a. Uh, a prisoner in his own well, he wasn't he was a prisoner in his own country in secret prisons well <laughs> uh, uh, we might say at this point oh that's unrealistic they would never have it in the bay but yeah we don't have uh, we don't mind them sending them out to syria or guantanamo bay right? if it's outside the country i think that this this get is by the bay yeah, yeah get more by the bay it's it i mean the only anachronism in this book is that they're sending people to iraq still I know they are still sending people to Iraq, but it's it's very small numbers compare in comparison. So, um, yeah, uh, this is uh, a great book. Yeah, he just liked the hack. Just like, uh, did you read? Did you hear the afterwards? That the person yeah. that hacked the Xbox just because it was there almost, mm-hmm. not, not for any uh, great purpose to uh, fight corporations or anything. She just enjoyed doing it, and luckily she's at MIT. <laughs> yeah, 
Well, it's it, it's true. Anything you you know, I love. That's why I love a PC. You know, you've got a PC. You can take it apart and put new stuff in it, flip it around, and you know, salvage what you like and figure out how it works. And that's where it came from. It came from people saying, "Well, hey, how can I?" It's not owned by a corporation. You know, like the Mac is Mac branded. It's Mac product. There is no PC brand. Right? Those ads <laughs> that we had, those are propaganda. That, that's a good example, right? Um, uh, apparently, the, the Mac versus PC, PC ads, they were designed to reinforce your choice of having purchased rather than uh, to encourage the purchase thereof. Now, I'm sure they had the, the same effect, but indeed, that is a, a form of propaganda, right? Um the hacker ethic is a good one. It's it's the science ethic. It's the let's understand the world ethic. And if that is uh, a propaganda, I love propaganda because I love science and I love understanding how the world works. So, Jenny, when you said the message, the good message of this book, a good message of this book, is to, to be aware, I was mm. hearing you saying that that message was political. But given what Tam and Jesse just said, I'm thinking it must be just be aware, just try things out. Because um, Marcus doesn't particularly show a political awareness. Um, he just wants to mess with authority and he wants to not have the school system have it over him. And they're out they're playing hooky because they have a live action role playing game. Well, role playing is what kids do with dolls in order to learn to be grown-ups. And so in effect, um, I, I think maybe, um, I want to embrace your, uh, your suggestion, but I want to embrace it in this wider sense that includes what Jesse just meant when he said, be scientific, think about taking things apart and putting them together again. Uh, or, right. or would that be unfair to what you had in mind? Oh, not at all. In fact, I'm looking for a quote that I think I marked that um, Marcus himself. Yeah, here it is. I don't really have a page number because I downloaded the Kindle version. But he said, I've, I've always loved just learning stuff for its own sake, just to be smarter about the world around me. And he's talking about, you know, going to the bookstore and reading Ginsburg and Kerouac and everything. I, mean, I think he believed that, too. Mm-hmm. Even if he didn't always use it for, I guess, noble purposes. <laughs> I mean, he's young. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I also think he's that... He's pointing to, by the way, I'm, I found the quote, too, because uh, he talks about the City Lights bookstore. All right? I mean, he's talking about back to San Francisco again. It's just uh, right. a, a seabed of this kind of alternative thinking. But also alternative schooling, right? <laughs> When, yeah. when your school is crap, uh, you, that doesn't mean you stop learning um, because sometimes school is crap. And the best way to solve that is just keep learning. Right. And By the way, any book or movie or story or anything that's set in San Francisco, I automatically rate it higher because <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite places in the world. So I automatically would have given this a half star more. <laughs> mm. So if it was a five, it'd be a five and a half. Sorry. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So you know what bard means then? Yes. Although it's mysterious if you're walking around San Francisco and you don't know what it is because it's all Have you seen Bart? Where's Bart? <laughs> Bart Simpson? Yeah. Eat my shorts. <laughs> um, oh, I, I think uh, we have, we have uh, ours is called the SkyTrain. I think that that, that uh, makes it easy. It's also easier to see because it's above ground. Yeah. But, yeah, I think uh, uh, what's, what's the one in Michigan? Eric? You mean the people mover in Detroit? Yeah. 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 What's that called? Is it it's called, called the people, people mover? mover? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have I mean, you, you seen you the can people even... mover? That yeah, sounds I, like propaganda. <laughs> I went. To, I went to the auto show for reasons that uh, uh, are not relevant here. And uh, in the in Cobo Hall, where the auto show was, there's a big sign that says, you know, to the DPM, to the DPM. Mm. You know, and if you don't know that DPM is Detroit People Mover. Yeah, it's the Department of Public Motors or something. It's the auto show. I don't know what it is. Um, so it works. Yeah, they've all got them. Um, at, uh, Berkeley, um, I don't know if they still do, but um, uh, in the in the 80s, I guess it was, maybe it was the 90s, in the 90s, um, there were two main uh, vans that um, Berkeley... Uh, the, the university ran to ferry students to and from the nearest BART station. That's called a jitney. Okay. I love that word. I, okay. I've, I discovered it in a Philip K. Dick story. It's, right. uh, uh, it's like a, it can be inside a factory or it's like a, a local bus-like van thing that people hop in and out of to move people around. Indeed, I'm familiar with the word jitney, but it happens that the jitney was in the shape of a van. Um, yep. <laughs> but but the, but the student uh, body, uh, the student government ran a uh, a contest to name the two lines that would go down to the to public transportation and bring people back up to campus. And they settled on the uh, Vincent Gobart and uh, and the oh God, I can't remember. No, I can't remember the other. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the other one. But it was equally lovely. So the word Bart is part of San Francisco culture now. I mean, you don't it, it, you you don't think Bay Area Rapid Transit. It's just it's it's such it's perfect as an acronym. So it's just become part of San Francisco culture. Right. Yeah, I had no idea what it was. I had to look it up like seventy five percent through the book. Okay. Ah. Well, I, I think that uh, this is one of the things we we haven't mentioned. You know, the first person perspective. Great storytelling technique. I I think the majority of the novels that I really really love are are told first person perspective and. It, the fact that you don't know what a Bart, I can't remember if I knew back in 2008 when I read it. I must have, I've been, I had been to San Francisco, so I probably knew what it was called. But um, the, the fact that uh, you, you aren't explained sort of the everyday things like, this is a telephone. Let's discuss. He explains tons of stuff in this book, right? There's thousands of lines of, um, and I put one in the review, even, of uh, Info Dump. And they're all wonderful. They're all little mini essays on how to care and understand some concept in hacking. Yeah, uh, oh, that's uh, the terrific. Super, the, the, the one on um, the terrorism detector in Super AIDS, right? <laughs> Imagine you have a test for Super AIDS. It's 99% effective. Uh, we can detect it 99% of the time. That, however, means it's got... Uh, Beautiful. 
beautiful writing. Right. He's so good at that, and it's so well integrated into the story. It is a masterwork. This is a wonderful piece of fiction. And it relates it to a pin. A pin can hit a pixel on a computer screen, but it can't hit a an atom. You need a, a more accurate uh, test yeah. for that. Yeah. That was a really good analogy. That's it's wonderful writing with great analogies. It's a wonderful fiction uh, writing with great analogies. It's. I, I like the lecture about with the uh, city planner. It was something about how to keep the right. city fully integrated. So somehow it's more healthy that way if all the different classes of people can uh, intermix. Yeah, you don't put all your all your sports venues in the same area with a bunch of uh, things that close at the same time, right? Uh, you don't put your uh, your city hall and your your um, museum and your your stadium all together uh don't plant over planet let it develop naturally it's 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 a it's a story of san francisco as well as a story of all the other things it's um and all the great food like i want to get the wow. turkish coffee yeah. there's so there yeah, absolutely there's uh, and you know look at all those great little characters too that just pop in and out of the story and i i think this this is um just a fantastic piece of science fiction Fantastic piece of agitprop. You know what maybe, character maybe. I really liked Who is, is that? Um, his dad. Just because his dad's the one that goes through the most change, right? He yep. starts out wanting so much to believe that the government's doing everything in everyone's best interest, and that they wouldn't lie. And <laughs> it was interesting to see him change. Well, he he is a, in a way. I I think the re, the uh, the parents, <laughs> you know. Uh, the parents of the reader as well you know dad you don't understand this xbox isn't just for games it's also for doing all sorts of other things right Mm -hmm. we we have as kids we have to do a lot of convincing of our parents uh that we're not like other kids i don't i don't know if you 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 had to do that but i did i actually i didn't have to do that much but i know a lot of my friends did uh my mom was pretty cool um, but, but, uh, but they yeah. end up hopeful though I mean you could go through an entire novel with the parents always being the evil un- misunderstood you know but in the end they come out and support him and make things happen Yep. in fact they help him figure out that he should have done some things that he hadn't done like talk to Daryl's dad and um, you know I think they gave him an ability to be less afraid. It's their contact with the reporter that makes that that public humiliation possible. Oh, most definitely. In a way, this is a sequel. It's a sequel to uh, 1984. So uh, maybe maybe it'll be up to somebody else than Cory Doctorow to, in 50 years, to write another one. Um, if if the children have gone to bed. Um, Maybe we adults could could turn to that passage that that sort of uh, crystallized for me some of the Oedipal issues here, since we're okay. talking about parents. Um, it, it it begins with a line, "Mom called us to dinner." If you finding it on an electronic version, it's mm-hmm. page three hundred on mine. And you know, think about Drew changing. Um, Drew is an interesting name, of course, because it's. It's only a part of Andrew, which means man. Mom called us to dinner. 
dad took Ange's hand. Isn't that interesting? Right? So dad and Ange are walking together as if they're a couple. He looked unshaved and worried the way he had since we'd gone to see Barbara. But on meeting Ange, a little of the old dad came back. She kissed him on the cheek, and he insisted that she call him Drew, which, of course, the alternative would be to call him, you know, Mr. So-and-so. But um, she's calling him the same thing his wife would call him. Dinner was actually really good. The ice broke when Ange took out her hot sauce mister. And I'll remind you that this is described as being like a pepper spray cylinder. So <laughs> I mean, think what of the, the shape of it. What was the Scoville level on that? Well, right. Uh, <laughs> 10,000 or whatever it was. But right. I'm asking you to think about the shape of it because without wanting to be too graphic, there are other things that have that cylindrical shape that spice <laughs> up the life for women. Right? It's not, it's not a cigar. It's not a cigar, <laughs> um, and I'm not sometimes, even. Sometimes, sometimes, uh, and a I'm thinking, mis- mix, Mister is just a spice, Mister. Well, you'll see what happens. All right. The ice broke <laughs> when sauce. Ange took out her hot sauce, Mister. Okay, isn't that interesting? The word is Mister. Yeah, that's that's funny. Right. I mean, it doesn't have to mean so. Right. I mean, Mister and Mrs. Right. She took out her hot sauce, Mister. And then she pressed it on mom. And treated, exactly, and treated her plate. She treated her plate and explained about Scoville units. Dad tried a forkful of her food and went reeling into the kitchen to drink a gallon of milk. In other words, he's been infantilized by the hotness of Angie. He's going to drink milk and lots of it. Believe it or not, mom still tried it after that and gave every impression of loving it. Uh, sorry about that. There's something chaotic in my home. Gave every impression of loving it. Mom, it turned out, was an undiscovered spicy food prodigy, a natural. Before she left, Ange pressed the hot sauce mister on Mom. I have a spare at home, she said. I'd watch her pack it in her backpack. You seem like the kind of woman who should have one of these. So the yeah, her, child her hus- is the becoming. Husband and the wife weren't getting along that well, so she's going to need it. <laughs> well, you see, the point is that, I mean, thinking in terms of the the underlying sexuality of what's going on here, the Ange is functioning as a doppelganger for mom, who has always had a good relationship with with Marcus, and now she Ange is taking on the adult role of helping mom come out of herself and drew is being pushed into the background so that marcus can take on the adult leadership role and what we have is as in any edible structure uh, a conflict over the passage of power from one authority to the next and this is signified by access to the sex object in this case as in the tempest this sex object is one of the same generation as the the person acquiring the power, and so the romantic relationship is licit, as opposed to having it be illicit if the the sex object were of the prior generation. That this passage here, I think, is it's you know when you read it with a really dirty mind, it tells you everything about what's going on in the family structure. And since severe haircut lady is the enemy, 
Um, I don't know whether or not we're supposed to read this as a, a stereotype of a certain kind of lesbian, but um, the sadism that's involved there in Severe Haircut Lady, which we see in other works like um, uh, The Dark Knight Returns, um, has that same kind of butch haircut on a, a, a sadistic female. Um, I can't help but wonder if there isn't also something here that is quite uh, potently heteronormative, um, asking us to just stay within certain bounds that we do know as we grow up. Well, Marcus, Marcus does say he, he liked uh, his girlfriend being the aggressor in their sexual relationship. He thought that was... That was really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to know where to find these aggressive women. Usually they're only <laughs> in movies. I mean, bo- both uh, Angie and uh, uh, Van uh, made, like, the first moves on him. But they're also in Heinlein. They're also in Heinlein in Starship in, in the Puppet Masters. Oh, well, yes, but they're only ha- – you know, that's the thing is he has it both ways. They're, uh, Heinlein female characters are are – so unfeminine in one respect and you know the, the, uh, one minute they're sexually aggressive nudists and then the next one they're coquettish and embarrassed for you know he's not good at characterization of women in the, no he's not but in the early Heinlein that's true they are they are aggressive and then they become they play second fiddle to the man that's true in Starship Troopers it's true in the Puppet Masters it's true of Wyoming not in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress which is a clear parallel here but in later Heinlein which gets published before Dr. O writes this book like Friday they just stay female aggressors aggressors throughout no, I, I think even Friday, she, she when she she's got her boss and the boss comes to see her in the hospital, she's she's not. Hey, let's get up and go. She's like, oh, boss, I'm cry, cry, cry. You know, uh, it's just a longer arc, and because she's the main character, it's it's harder to to see. I I don't think I think he, that was you know Heinlein's a wonderful writer in many ways, but not not for women. He's terrible. No, I'm not saying he's a good writer for women. I am trying to even, suggest even that, in later, that he's, later. A, he's a background here for, for Dr. O, that, you know, uh, Tam, you just said, where do you get all these aggressive women? And I'm saying, <laughs> you, right. you get them in Heinlein. I, I mean, actually, at the beginning of this book, it felt to me like um, um, How Spaceship Will Travel. It was kind of like... like... Oh. oh, did we lose Tam again? After about an hour, he falls down a well and can't be reached. <laughs> Should send Lassie out. <laughs> you can't hear me right now? Oh, no, now he's back. He's back. You can hear me? Yes, we can yes. hear you. Make your point. I, I was just saying, uh, the beginning of this book felt a lot like uh, How Space Will Travel in the beginning, where the kid is explaining, uh, instead of it's how to build a space uh, suit, it's how to work with computers and stuff. So it felt just like a Holland Juvenile to me. Like in the Yeah, movie. absolutely. It's, it's, it's got that, you know, what's the father say at the beginning of Half Space Suits uh, Will Travel? He says, um, uh, the son says, Dad, I want to go to the moon. <laughs> and he says, okay then. <laughs> and then lets him go, go about how to do it, right? Right. Yeah, uh, I think that that's a nice, uh, I think that that particular, that, that's, that's one that I see a lot of teachers use as their, you know, I'm going to give a kid a book. I think that has space w- suit with travel is a kind of, um, it's kind of a little, uh, it's a maybe 
11 and a half year old book whereas this is a 12 12 level book maybe so but, it's a yeah. gateway drug well because it's it's got the the sister uh alien uh, i think the back end of the book is not doesn't hold up as well but it's a great it's one of the greatest uh introductions to a Heinlein novel everybody loves that book i think mm-hmm. it jesse since you raised the question of the uh the implied reader here, you know, what's sort of the ideal audience? Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to, to ask you guys um, an audience question. Uh, when when I read uh, children's books, I mean real, like, children's picture books, you know, Good Night Moon or something, uh, I read them... I read them because I teach a course in graphic narrative, and I want my students who are undergraduates and graduate students to be able to do hard, thoughtful analyses of those kinds of works. Um, But the reality is that I also sometimes read these books to my grandchildren. And in both cases, I find that when I read, I am of many minds. That is, part of me is um, the adult figuring out the the critical aspects, thinking of this as a a work of art. A part of me is grandpa uh, trying to delight my grandchildren and hoping that I'm able to strengthen my relationship with them by participating in a moment of common entertainment. But part of, one part of my mind, as I said, of many minds, one of those minds is recreating in myself the child for whom I infer the book is actually written and being able to have in that fictive, vicarious way, the sense of what it's like to be three or six years old um, and have this book read to you. Now, with with Little Brother, um, unlike some YA, there are some YA novels like uh, The Book Thief that I just frankly read as an adult. I, I don't have to also be an adolescent when I read The Book Thief. But when I read Little Brother, there's a part of me that says, oh, man, I'm a 12-year-old here, and I love it. Because, frankly, the, the, the real me didn't learn anything here as far as the technology goes. I teach a course in technology and the humanities. There was no news here for me about how the technical systems function. Um, but I kept remembering what it was like when I was 12 and reading the science fiction of the time and learning about escape velocities and learn. I mean, I just learned all kinds Mm -hmm. of science from those books. So for me, reading this book was a matter of being of two minds. There was the me reading it and kind of enjoying the story about a teenager and a didactic or propagandistic work. There was me, the critic, seeing how it was constructed. And there was me remembering or trying to be a 12-year-old. And so I guess I'm, I, what I want to know is, as you read the book, um, there's a, were you of many minds or, or were you of one mind? And if you were of many minds, how did they get along? What, what were the different minds? Well, you know, I'm a big fan of audiobooks. I don't know if you knew that, but <laughs> <laughs> I am a big fan of audiobooks. And, of course, I listened to this audiobook, which I, I must say that Kirby Hayborn is still a good narrator. He was a good narrator back in 2008. He's still a great narrator. Um, I I never, you know, uh, as a kid, 
you're supposed to have these things called transitional objects and you're supposed to go through stages and blah, 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 blah. None of the things that I did as a kid or thought, thought as a kid, I, I haven't ever stopped doing any of those things. So one of the things I loved was being read to. I still love it. And I, I really enjoyed being read to. Um, and I, I'm sure there were some things I knew, <laughs> Uh, but I did learn a lot in this book, and I especially learned a lot about great analogies <laughs> uh, for why a lot of the things I knew, uh, how, how to explain them. I think he's, he's just a great teacher of, of analogies, Cory Doctor is. But also, um, you know, I, I was read Lord of the Rings out loud. I think that's the best way to hear it. Right? Not in your head, but have somebody read it to you. Wow, it's wonderful. Wow. So this actually made you feel a part of of your youth that you've never I'm let go of, right? It's just that's still twelve just, years old. Yeah, right. I, a lot of people go away from science fiction, you know, uh, and then come back to it. Uh, but I've never left it. I'm just sitting here smiling. You can't hear that, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a pleased smile. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. A genial smile. Of a father-like figure, I must kill you now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't mean it was a patronizing smile. It was a friendly smile. I'm glad for you. Yeah. I still. I, I just wrote a post about how I still have all my Lego. And uh, how I still I still uh, play with it, in a sense. I, I don't... I build things with it. And uh, calling it an art form. But, yeah, I think that... Uh, as you get older, you you gain in responsibilities, but you don't need to drop uh, any of the playfulness. Before the podcast started, we were talking, and you said, um, Eric, you said that uh, I seem to have a sunny dis. Or I think I said I have a sunny disposition when you're asking me about the the stress of being poor <laughs> or something like that. And it's just uh, I'm still a kid, just a, a kid who's going bald and. A kid who's <laughs> got gray hair where he isn't going bald and that sort of thing. Yeah, same here. I'm probably still a little brother, so <laughs> doesn't take me back because I'm here already. Wow. <laughs> and and you work, you, you work in the security field too. Well, in the, in the computer field. Yeah. That you weren't learning new stuff, were you, Tam? Um, well, it, it fills in little uh, holes here and there. I mean. That, that kind of stuff always piques my interest. So even though I, it seems like a lot of info dumping to me, I it was interesting info dumping, so I didn't mind. You know, somebody went and made, apparently, a version of Paranoid Linux. It didn't exist before this book. But after, oh, I assumed it, it did. Yeah, afterwards somebody said, that's a really good idea, and, and made one. Okay. How about Jenny? Are you uh, uh, of two minds of this book? I can't decide. <laughs> I, 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 I don't. I don't know. You have two minds about that question. Two minds about whether she knows the answer to that question. Do you feel like you're surrounded by little brothers? <laughs> I just I don't have a good answer. Well, well I, to some extent, you have to be doing. I don't say you have to, but I'm supposing that to some extent, you have got to be reforming in your mind, um, a reader who is different from you because um, you 
I mean, I presume that you develop some sense of identification with with Marcus the same way that I do with Cinderella, and that means crossing a a gender line. I think it, it reminds me of when I first listened to this book. It took me a while to realize that the people who had him in captivity were actually the government. I remember wondering if this was just one more group that had tried to take over, you know, because in the beginning you don't really know what happened. Yeah. And especially when you're listening to the audio, it's slower to develop. And I remember <laughs> this yeah, moment. Yeah, you read so quickly. Well, but I remember this moment when it occurred to me and I, I finally realized that, no, this, this isn't someone taking over the government that has him in prison and isn't giving him his rights. This is the actual government. And I think the place where the two minds comes in for me is that despite everything that goes on, despite the scary things that happen, despite the Patriot Act, I think part of me deep down still thinks, oh, but that couldn't really happen here. <laughs> right. But I have to believe that it does for to really get into the book, I guess. I'm not sure if that's exactly what you're getting at, but I definitely remember that moment. <laughs> well, it might not happen you know, here exactly, but it's certainly happening. Yeah. But I think part of me wants to remain the little brother slash sister that doesn't really have to know that. <laughs> maybe that'll be the sequel, Little Sister. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Around the same period that uh, that sister. Wells... Sorry. No, no, I'm, I'm, I, I, wanna, I want or, you to be or, able to speak. Or, or Big Sister, you know. Um. I don't know. Uh, let's let's yeah, keep going. Well, I, well, I was going to say is around the same period that Wells was writing uh, Star Begotten, Eric Fromm publishes uh, Escape from Freedom, in which he makes in much larger. I mean, he focuses on the the same thing that's crystallized in the passage that I quoted from Wells, um, that people don't like to, people like choice, but they like limited choice. Right. I mean, I want to decide how to spend my million dollars on flashy car or terrific home, but I don't want to have to decide whether or not I have a right to have that million dollars. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I want to decide whether I take a pill or undergo surgery to cure this problem, but I don't want to have to choose uh, among a zillion different lifestyle problems, um, challenges in order to avoid having to have that problem to begin with. I want certainty. And I'm not saying that I personally do, but, but Fromm is arguing that the rise of fascism and conformism in the United States, that all over the world, people become fundamentalists and they, they want the congregation for the propagation of the faith to succeed because they want to lose themselves in what Roman Gary calls the oceanic feeling, and Fromm quotes Gary uh, in that regard. And you know, I'm, it's so much easier if you. I mean, I remember protesting during the Vietnam War. Uh, fortunately, I was spared having to serve, but I was of an age where I might have served, and I remember protesting and having people a generation older than I was telling me, "You don't understand. The government knows things you don't know. You have no right to be doing this." Yeah. And they were they so don't. comfortable. They're they were no, so, that's right. the, the secret is 
the people who run the government only have more power than you. They have less intelligence than you. <laughs> less intelligence not in the, the, the formal CIA sense, but intelligence as in smartness. Uh, the closer you, you get to power, the more obvious it becomes that these are not brilliant minds in most cases. Right. Although, in some cases, you know, you do have brilliant minds, but you've also got blindness. Blindness of a magnificently large kind. But, but to believe otherwise gives people, to, to believe otherwise gives people comfort. And I think that's what we see in Drew. He wants to be able to believe that everything is under control and that the, the contingency and ultimate mortality of life oh. will be spared. To which I would have to quote from 1984. <laughs> but it was all right. Everything was all right. The struggle was finished. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. Exactly. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.